0: Uh, we're in Deuteronomy 16 today, uh, verses 18 to 20, and we're going to talk about uh, justice, the justice of God. Um, now, this is a large topic, and a lot of the topics that we're covering are large topics and impossible to get through everything. I, some of my thoughts I had today was, I should just read 20 different passages on justice and just let that sit and just walk away at that moment. There's so much about God's justice in the Bible that as I read it and kind of reflect on it, uh, it just it really it hits your heart uh, to think about um, thousands of years ago uh, up until today. God has a heart uh, for justice and and justice is incredibly important uh, to God. Uh, for any society. And so we're going to read Deuteronomy and then we're we're going to jump in. Which is kind of this overview um, or the survey of justice before we talk about the passage fully. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18 begins. You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice... You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, and you shall live and inherit, and that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the the subject of justice uh, is incredibly important, and it's important throughout. All of Scripture. And as we're reading here, Moses is reiterating the law before Israel walks into the promised land. He's reminding them of the law, the Ten Commandments, and expounding upon it for them. Um, But to understand the importance of justice and how deep uh, an importance it is for God, I think we have to first look no further than the cross. Uh, Because the cross, we see just the ultimate justice. Uh, the, the understanding is, is this, and, and if you don't understand the justice of God, then uh, but you only understand the grace of God, then you're missing a huge aspect of God, and what you get at the end of that is cheap grace, which is uh, grace that costs nothing for you to have, which is, I can do whatever I want, I can sin, I can live my life however I want, and it doesn't matter, because whatever I've done, I, you know, I can just go to God whenever I want, I can have ask for forgiveness and so we take grace and we use it as a means for us to live deeply in sin Uh, and if we do that then we don't understand the cross fully and we don't understand the justice of God because at the cross the reason for the cross is first and foremost is for the justice of God because of the deep sin of humankind past present and future there had to be a payment for that sin that was given. This sin could not go unjudged in the world. There is no sin that does not have a cost that comes with it. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, what is happening is atonement or payment for all of our sin is being paid in the brutal death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when we look at the cross, we see two things. We see that God is a very just God and sin has a cost to it. That there there is in no sense where there's just the, the toll of sin being racked up that is not judged properly and paid for. And so in the death of Jesus, we see justice for all the sins of the world is served in his death. But we also see the love of God and his death is why would somebody go and die on a cross, such a brutal death and take on the sins of the world? For no reason. He does it for a reason. There is deep love that God has for us, where even though we have constantly rejected him of humankind, we've constantly walked away from him. At the end of the day, he still provides the ultimate path for us to have relationship with him. And sometimes we confuse that his love for us is meaning that there is no cost. There is no justice served. But that is not the case. Throughout scripture, we see that God constantly dealing with this subject in Deuteronomy, in the beginnings of the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, we see that God is setting up his nation state to be a just one that is very different from the nations around him. We see that over time in the prophets that God is constantly calling kings to a place of justice. When they have mistreated his people, when they have mistreated others, he sends his prophets, his messengers, to go talk to them, to call them to repentance or pronouncements of judgments if they do not repent for their actions. And so we we see that when the nation of Israel starts to walk away and treat people unjustly, God sends his prophets and says, no, this is something that's deeply on my heart. You cannot... Uh, be people that reign unjustly in the world. And then in the New Testament, we see it constantly. But specifically, I think about James, where he says that true religion is caring for the vulnerable, uh, the widows and the fatherless. And this is justice among us today. And we see that in Scripture. God deals with justice uh, really two ways. And uh, the first way that we see that God... uh, Make sure that justice is happening in the world is through uh, the nation states or governments. Uh, And, you know, that's where we have legal systems and prosecution and uh, all the things that uh, we kind of enjoy in the legal system. Uh, And then God takes care of it on his own. And so we see that when nations walk away from the justice that should be happening, that judgment comes upon them where God takes Uh, the justice uh, on his own behalf and begins to judge rightly nations that are causing uh, injustice or walking away from the way that they should be. And so we see these two uh, areas constantly in Scripture where God is using governments, nations, kings to bring forth his judgment and his justice in the world and then also him doing it himself. And uh, one uh, recent occurrence that I think about where we think about how kind of a our nation and, and people walked away from just practices where we see a judgment occurred and a correction occurred uh, was the 2008 subprime uh, mortgage crisis. Uh, I, I was in finance class, uh, learning a lot about finance at this time. Uh, that was the profession I was supposed to go into. Uh, and during this time, it was one of the, you know one of the worst recessions, the worst recession and a, in a in our history, since they call it the Great Recession, uh, since it never quite got to the Depression era, Uh, but it was as close as you can to get to it before hitting a depression. And, you know, during the analysis of the 2008 subprime crisis, a lot of people tried blaming, you know, they blame the big banks, they blame the government, they blame the people. Uh, But ultimately, what we saw here was we saw greed at work. Uh, and a lot of people in power trying to take advantage of people that didn't understand mortgages that they were signing. The more you read on it, you realize that the crisis happened because people signed these mortgages, these 30-year mortgages. And you know the, the salesperson would go up to them and the, the, the big banks, they would say, Okay, this is the kind of terms that we're going to give you and uh, you are going to pay very little for seven years. And then after the seven years, you're going to have, you know, there's going to be a balloon payment. We're going to adjust your interest rate. And then after that, we can just refinance. You don't even have to worry about that. But what most people knew is that didn't know is that that was a lie. And so the seven years came, uh, you know, the banks were giving mortgages to everybody, really bad mortgages that people really couldn't pay and shouldn't be getting. And then the, the balloon payments came, the interest rose. And then what happened is everybody started defaulting. And the defaults were in the tens of thousands of defaults happening. And so what what happened was all these banks that got really greedy and these people that were selling that got really greedy and started to kind of package these as really great mortgages and stable investments. They started to sell them off in the system of greed. And then you have people that shouldn't be buying these thinking, oh, I want this. I want that. I can get into debt for this. And it became this really Downward cycle, and then in 2008, it all collapsed. And uh, you know, and and finance, you hear all the time about the top banks, the top five, and one of them collapsed and just disappeared overnight. If you look at the footage of Bear Stearns the day that they collapsed, it's some of the craziest footage that you see. You just see thousands of people just walking out of their job, distraught, wondering what just happened. Uh, Some of them walking away with their things, with their computers. And it's just this billion dollar industry just got destroyed overnight. And so the first bank goes and then the other banks start to go. And so the government comes in and they, 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 they do quantitative easing or they give the federal aid package and they save the rest of the banks. But I think of moments like this that happen where we start to allow greed to inform our decision making and we begin to take advantage of people. There were at high levels of power, people taking advantage of others, just trying to make money off of other people. And that spirals, spirals, spirals. And then what happens? A judgment comes. Justice um, comes and says, this can't go on any longer. And so if you read history, you see I'm a history buff. I love history, constantly reading history books. But you see in history that there is constant justice that is being served that People are always thinking we're in the high times. We're never going to come off the pinnacle. We are the the, the greatest empire, the greatest nation, the greatest country. And we build these empires as as humans and we think that we're infallible and that nothing can touch us. Uh, You know, the, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, today the American Empire. Nobody will ever touch us. And then what happens is... We grow cocky, as people do. Uh, we grow arrogant, and we think, man, we don't, don't need God. We don't need Him in our systems. We don't need Him in our thoughts. We don't need Him in our prayers. We don't need Him in our life, and we get rid of Him because we're okay without Him. And that starts a system of decline, a system of injustice, a system of inequity uh, that gets corrected and will be corrected. And so we see that not only is this talked about in scripture constantly, but it is constantly seen throughout history where nations are used to correct other nations. And so I think about when I think about what God's people are called to be today, I think about this, that we are called to be just in our dealings with one another as people, we are called to not retaliate against others, but instead leave vengeance in the hands of God. To pray for our leaders in power, that they would act justly towards others and that they would be guided by the hand and the will of God. And as a church, to show an alternative way on how to treat people with care, with love and with justice. And so when we read the Old Testament on justice, we realize that the main difference between the Old Testament And today is this, is that Israel was a theocracy. They were a nation state. And so God is laying down laws as a nation that they are supposed to live by. And when we think of today, how we are supposed to live is the church has taken the place of Israel as God's chosen people, but we are not a nation state in that physical sense. And so we can learn a lot of from the character of God and how he wants his people to deal with others and how he wants his people to live and how he wants his people to treat others and and walk through in this life. And so that's what we're going to continually unpack today. So with all that said, let's kind of look in this passage a little bit deeper. There are four commands given here. And the first command is the foundation for the rest of the commands, and it's a positive thing. Moses says this, he says, The judges and the officers shall judge the people with righteous judgment. The judges and the officers shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So Moses starts off with this affirmative command. This is what you're supposed to do. You know, over the people of Israel, Moses had set officers. He had set judges. He had set leaders over different people to make decisions um, when the people had qualms and fights and the things. And so the first thing that... All the decisions should come from a place of righteousness. And righteousness means moral, means virtuous. This should be unhindered or untainted by perverse or thoughts or greed or selfish dealings. And so, but after this, we kind of get a better explanation through the next three commands that Moses gives, but he gives them through the negative. And he says, you shall not three times. And the first thing he says is, you shall not pervert justice. And really, this is a call against prejudice. Because they were saying, what Moses is saying is justice should not be denied anybody. Justice should not uh, be denied anybody. No matter who you are, where you are, justice needs to be served. It cannot be perverted. So it doesn't matter whether you like this person or you don't like this person, whether this person is of your tribe or not of your tribe. It doesn't matter any of that. Justice should not be perverted. No matter who you are, you need to have justice be served. And so a godly society looks at all people and says, no matter who you are, you can receive justice. And so... When we look at God's character, we look at a system where justice is not perverted, that everybody is treated equally. And I also think of the cross when I think of this, where Jesus, his death, he provides a way for all of us to go. But he says, you must come through me to get through the father and through my sacrifice. Because this is, The wrath of God was poured out on me, so it didn't have to be poured out of you. But if you do not come through me, then you will be judged for your sin. You will be judged for everything that you've done. But if you come through me, then your sin has been taken upon me that I can stand before you and say, no, judge my actions, judge my life. Do not judge his, do not judge hers. So justice is served equally to everyone where... We don't look at somebody and say, well, I don't like you or you don't fit this kind of mold. And we see that even more described in the next command. And I want to spend some time on this command, because as I was kind of praying and reading through um, the scripture, this scripture kept coming to my heart. The next one was, you shall not show partiality. Basically, you should not show favoritism when you're dealing out with justice. And I thought about this verse in James. I want to read um, in James chapter 2, verse 1. James says this in his letter. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. And the rich, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you in, are the rich not the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There's a lot James is saying in here. Um, And really, he's talking the same thing, that we are to be people that do not show partiality. And unfortunately, in the church, this hasn't been the case a lot of times. Um, I think of constantly how our human nature works And, and even how we see in today's world with Uh, Instagram and Facebook and we when we treat somebody we see somebody and we you know we we can go up to somebody and say oh how you doing shake their hand nice to meet you Uh, and then maybe you know you go home and you look them up you do your stalking on social media and you find out who they are and you go wow this person has 50,000 followers and so next time you think, I'm going to be a little bit nicer to them. I'm going to smile a little bit more. I'm going to, you know, maybe, maybe they'll do a, a picture of me and post it. And maybe I can get some followers off of them as well. And, and maybe I can ride some of, of that fame with them. And I think about also famous people. I mean, if, if somebody, um, you know, if, if Michael Jordan were to walk in the church This is my one sports reference, everybody, so be happy about it. (laughs) If Michael Jordan were to walk in the church, it would be mayhem. I mean, let's just be honest. There would be chaos right now. If he were to walk in right this moment, people would forget that I'm preaching. uh, And and, and there would be a bum rush to Michael. (laughs) We got a lot of amens over here. (laughs) Everybody be taking off their sneakers like, see who can get to them first to sign my Jordans. (laughs) Because inherently as people, we look at wealth, we look at status, we look at power, and we say, you must be more important because you have these things. When truly status, wealth, and power, they are not definitions of character. They are not indications of our status before God. They are not indications of our righteousness and a life filled with fruit. I I think about a conversation that the disciples had with Jesus when the rich young ruler was turned away because he wouldn't give everything that he owned away. and, And Jesus says it's really hard for a rich person to enter into heaven. And the disciples, their minds are blown because in their conditional covenant in the Old Testament, they're thinking, well, the, the person who followed the, the commandments of God, the, the, these are the people that are most blessed, that have the most wealth, that have the most prosperity. So if this person who has followed the law of God perfectly, has been blessed by God, ha- has, has truly seen Everything in his life prosper if he cannot make it into heaven. Who can? Who can? Because the disciples they looked at a person's status, they looked at a person's wealth, and they thought this is their status and their and their 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 titles among God. And Jesus is constantly correcting them and saying, No, actually, it's reversed in the kingdom of heaven. It's the poor who are rich, it's the weak who are strong. When you take care of the least of these, that is when you are taking care of me. And so, God actually calls us to look inside of ourselves and realize that we are poor, that we are weak. And that we are in desperate need of a savior. And when you start looking at other people and thinking, well, they have it all together. Well, they don't. They, I want to be like that person instead of looking at Christ and saying, I want to model him. What you're really doing is you're pushing a system of self-righteousness. Of saying, it is possible for me to make it on my own. It is possible for me to obtain something that is worthy through something that my hands do. And when you start doing that, then no wonder when people come to church and... Maybe they don't smell the way you want them to smell. Maybe they don't look the way that you want them to look. Maybe they don't have the clothes that you want them to have. And so you, you direct yourself another way. Let me find somebody that more fits into you know, something that I want. And I think about this saying that has constantly invaded the church that uh, surround yourself with the people you want to be like. Right. This is a motivational speech quintessential thing. If you are only looking for friends that you feel like are going to grow your status and grow your power and grow your wealth, then you are missing the gospel. You are walking away from the vulnerable. You are walking away from the ways of Jesus. And though you may be great on earth, you will not be great in heaven. Because the ones who serve like Jesus served and, and go to the vulnerable, to the outcast, to the sinner, the one who surrounds himself with the tax collector and the prostitute, these are the ones that are called great in the kingdom of God. Amen. But so often we've let the world theology and world culture invade our Christian culture. And we think, no, I need to keep... Putting my, bringing myself up the ladder. I've got to keep up with the Joneses. We don't even like the Joneses. Who likes the Joneses? <laughs> but we have fallen into this system. That we, we look at someone's earthly status, we look at someone's earthly power, we look at someone's earthly wealth... And we either think, I need to be close to that person because they have something that I don't have. And think about what that sounds like to Jesus. That somebody has something on earth that you don't have, that you want, that you desire. And so you begin to change your lifestyle. You begin to change how you live. You begin to act differently around them. You begin to want to be like them. Doesn't that sound like false idolatry to, to you? You start to put somebody else on a pedestal and say, Man, I want what they have, I want what they offer, I want what, what they can give. And so you change, you you morph, you become. But Jesus is saying, No, I have given you everything that you need. I've offered up my life so that you can be rich. That there is no status, there is no wealth, there is no power. That needs to be desired among you. And when that happens, when the poor man or the poor woman can walk among your mix, they will feel rich. They will feel cared for. They will feel at home. You know, I think of these systems that we've created where if you don't look a certain way, you can't come to church. If you... If you have the wrong piercings, you have the wrong tattoos, you have the wrong suit, you have the wrong skirt, you have the wrong pants, then you're not welcome here unless you conform to that. But really, the people that are coming different should be like MJ walking in the room. We drop everything that we're doing and we say, how can I serve you? Because the greatest in the kingdom is the least among us. (laughs) Where Jesus said, it is the Gentiles who lord it over each other and try to rule over one another. But I, I have come to serve. So when we, we look with earthly eyes, we think, oh man, I should be nicer to that person that looks like they have it together. Get together because really we want to use them. We don't care about them. One day I'm going to ask you for money and you better say yes and we ain't ever talking again. It's not like we actually care about that wealthy person's soul. It's not like we actually want to see them grow in their relationship with God. We just think, how can I use this person as a means to my end? But instead, God, I pray that you give us heavenly eyes. That when we see the vulnerable, our reaction is not, oh, God, I hope somebody helps them. But get me out of here. But our reaction is, how do I serve this person? How do I show true religion? How do I live out the gospel in my life where I'm showing no partiality? Where the rich man and the poor man can come together and they can hang out and they can be in one another's homes and they can have a great conversation and talk. And not one feel like they're better than the other because they both know that at the cross they are sinners in need of the same grace in need of the same righteousness, and scared of the same judgment. God takes this issue of justice seriously. I mean, as... uh, Some of us are reading through the book of Exodus right now for Lent, and there are so many laws in Exodus that deal with justice that have just been wrecking me left and right, that I've had to stop my reading and just ponder on, God, what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for your church? What does this mean for us and how we deal with one another? And so often we have had just so much backwards because we... We look up to the wrong things. But I pray that God convicts our hearts and points us to look at scripture instead of culture. To learn how we deal with one another. To learn how we care for one another. To learn how, how, we, how we live in forgiveness and in love and in a place that does not pervert justice. See, there's good news and scary news when we think about God being a just God. Proverbs 21, 15 says this. When justice is done, it is the glory to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. It is good news because it means that God is going to fight on our behalf. He has our back. Everything that we need is found in him. And he will pronounce judgment and ultimately he will write the scales of all time. That's good news. We don't need to look for vengeance or retaliation. No matter how bad of an injustice is done to us, we follow the example of Christ and we give. It is bad news because all of us participate in injustice. No matter how good we have tried to be, we have all participated in Injustice. It could be an action towards somebody on the street, it could be a lie to get our way, these are unjust things that all of us have participated in. And if we do not repent of these crimes that we have committed, we will they will fall upon our heads and justice will be served. God does not take justice lightly. But the good news is this with repentance, we will not face what we deserve. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for our sin. This reveals God's ultimate justice for us and his ultimate love for us as well. And so, I believe God is calling us today to repent. You know, repentance is not just something we do at our mouths. It's not lip service. Repentance is is something that happens with our actions. That the, the next time after we repent... That we see somebody that has status, that has power, that we desire. When we go to talk to them, we say, what is my motivation? We ask ourselves that question. That doesn't mean we don't treat wealthy people worse now, which some people have gone the other way. And it's like, we hate rich people. If you're rich, get out of here. We don't like you. That's not the case. (laughs) We just realize that no one is better than anybody. And unfortunately, in society we tend to think that people with these things are better than us or better than others. And so we ask ourselves, we say, God, how does this change my heart and my motivation when I deal with others? I repent of the injustice in my heart. There may be things in your life that you are doing to ultimately manipulate the scales and weigh one version over another. And you're trying to say, well, I'm lying and I'm scheming because I want these outcomes. And God has called his people, do not pervert this. Do not show partiality. Do not let greed or bribes dictate your outcomes. But instead... Repent. Turn away. And allow the righteousness of God to truly penetrate in your heart. And when you realize your status before God, that yes, you are a sinner like everybody else, but now you are a son or a daughter, a citizen of heaven, transferred from the darkness to the light. And you realize... And I, these are, these are children of God. I treat, they are citizens, they are, you don't mess with other people's kids. You just don't, because you know someone bigger than you is going to slap you. (laughs) And when we start to look down on other people, just remember, someone bigger than us can slap us for this. change our ways. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I pray that we would be a people that hate injustice the way that you hate it. Lord, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to thoroughly examine our hearts right now. And we would say, God, root out this from our church. Root out this from our lives, root out, this from our talk and from our actions. That we would have a posture of repentance and turning away today. And Lord, I pray for the future of our church, that these words from James and these words from Moses, Lord, that they would be indoctrinated into the culture of who we are. That we would not be a people who show partiality. But we would look at the rich and at the poor as our brothers and our sisters. That we are all in need of the same Savior, in need of the same grace, in need of the same righteousness. And that we would care for one another's souls. Not based on what we look like on the outside, but based, God, on the understanding that we are your children. Father, I pray that this would be culture here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we end in worship, I'm going to invite you to stand.